Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté, and joining me is Glenn Greenwald. He writes at greenwald.substack.com. Glenn, how are you? I'm doing great, Aaron. How is it going? Thank you for asking me to join you. The theme for today's interview that I want to lay out is basically just a series of embarrassing and explosive disclosures from the uh, U.S. national security state and still a refusal by the media that so often parrots what CIA officials tell them to write to acknowledge uh, these developments. I'm talking about uh, new developments in the case of Julian Assange, details of the CIA's war against him, new developments in Russiagate where you have a Clinton lawyer indicted for lying to the FBI while basically pushing a concocted narrative trying to draw uh, Trump-Russia ties. Uh, an admission from the U.S. government that, in fact, this so-called Havana syndrome that has been afflicting U.S. diplomats where supposedly Russia or Cuba or some other enemy has been attacking U.S. officials with sonic weapons is most likely crickets. Uh, but I want to start with a story that you've been very vocal on, which is this Hunter Biden laptop story. Before the election in 2020, the U.S. media basically censored itself from reporting on the Hunter laptop revelations. And social media giants even blocked reporting uh, being shared on social media because some anonymous CIA officials declared that this whole thing might be Russian disinformation. Now we have a book coming out from a political reporter that confirms some of the emails uh, on the Hunter Biden laptop actually came from Hunter Biden. And this reporter confirmed this through reporting of his own. You've been very vocal on this. I mean, this issue led to your resignation from The Intercept. I'm just wondering your comment on this disclosure and the prevailing media silence about it. Yeah, I don't think we have fully processed the significance of that episode, in part because it happened three weeks before this high stakes election and not no one thing can get the attention it deserves, but also because so much of the media was behind it and was responsible for it that they weren't saying that they thought it was a big deal. Quite the contrary, they were saying that it was something that was normal and natural when it was the opposite, which is Twitter and Facebook intervened in the discourse that Americans have, which takes place largely over the internet on these technology giants and these platforms, these monopolistic platforms, to bar any discussion in Twitter's case at all of this reporting by the New York Post, and in the case of Facebook, to algorithmically suppress it so that it couldn't spread, which even if everything they were saying about the story were true, that it was that it came from Russia, that it was disinformation, would be extraordinary interference by corporate giants and tech monopolies in our politics. To you, you would if you tried to post a link to Twitter, it would not allow you to do so. It would say that this link has been judged harmful. And if you tried to do it to Facebook, they would tinker with their algorithms to make sure very few people saw it. And the and Twitter went even further than that. They locked the New York Post, which was the newspaper that first broke the story and that had the archive out of their account for two weeks leading up to the election, did not allow them to defend themselves, to be heard, to promote their reporting that they were doing. It was an incredible putting of the finger on the thumb of the scale in favor of Joe Biden and against uh, against Donald Trump. And then beyond that, the argument, as you alluded to, that was made to justify not just them doing it, but the media ignoring it, including my own media outlet preventing me from writing about it, 
was that these ex-intelligence officials led by John Brennan and Jim, James Clapper and all the people who have been trained liars and who have lied repeatedly claimed that it was Russian disinformation. And to me, this is uh, just classic uh, textbook uh, Soviet-Russian uh, tradecraft at work. Uh, the Russians have analyzed the target. They understand that the president and his enablers uh, crave uh, dirt on Vice President Biden, whether it's real or contrived, that doesn't matter to them. And so all of a sudden, two, two and a half weeks before the election, uh, this laptop appears somehow uh, without and uh, emails on it without any metadata. Uh, it just it's all very curious. But the, so here you have uh, a willing target and the Russians who are very sophisticated about how to exploit a, a, a willing target. And uh, to me, that's what's at work here. This laptop was, which contains two different claims. One is that it came from Russia, the other of which is that it's disinformation, meaning presumably that the documents are forged, that the emails are inauthentic and not real. That's what disinformation means. And that is what Twitter and Facebook seized on. That's what these media outlets hype forever. And we had evidence very early on in that first week, but they came from right-wing outlets proving that this archive was authentic, the kind of evidence that I've always looked for when I've reported large ar archives and was willing to stake my career and reputation on reporting them, like in the Stoning case with WikiLeaks, with the big Brazil reporting and expose that I was able to do because of an archive like this, I know how to verify this. The evidence was there from the start that it was real, but because it came from right-wing outlets, Fox News, Daily Caller, and everyone else ignored it, it was easily discredited. But now you have a new book out by this political reporter, Ben Schreckinger, who I hope you'll interview because the book itself is fantastic. It's extremely well-researched. It's in general about the Biden family, a lot of information that people hadn't yet known. But what he did in particular was spend months, not just authenticating random emails in the archive, but the key emails, the ones that were the foundation for the reporting about what Joe Biden did in Ukraine to benefit Hunter Biden's company, Burisma, that was paying him $50,000 a month to sit on its board, as well as deals that the Biden family was pursuing with Chinese interests that would, according to some of these documents, involve a profit participation by Joe Biden. Those were the, the, the emails that Ben Schreckinger went and authenticated through just very shoe leather kind of reporting, doing FOIA requests and comparing what he got from governments to the documents in the archive, going and interviewing the people who are on the email chain. So as it turns out, Aaron, this, this claim that we were drowned in, subsumed with before the election by a combination of the CIA, big tech, and the corporate media, that these Hunter Biden emails were Russian disinformation, which led to the censoring of the story and the refusal of media outlets to cover it, is completely untrue. It's just false. It was a lie. It was a conspiracy theory invented by the intelligence community. And what is most remarkable about all of this is that despite this being a book coming from the belly of the beast of mainstream journalism, he's a reporter at Politico, it doesn't get more mainstream than that, all of the outlets that spread this lie are just ignoring the book, like pretending it doesn't exist, let alone grappling with what it is they did. I haven't studied the history of propaganda, but I, I have to guess that the Russiagate disinformation campaign since 2016 is one of the most successful in history. I mean, there's so many aspects to it. It, it inculcated in so many people this belief that the president of the United States is like a, a victim of Russian blackmail and is also conspiring with it. But just looking at one narrow aspect of it, which is 
what it did for scrutiny of favored liberal elites. So from 2016 through 2020, in two consecutive elections, it was decreed that if you uh, scrutinize documented facts, uh, including documents and emails that show Democratic elite corruption, then you are basically doing the bidding of and victim of Russian disinformation. Despite the fact that in both cases, there is there is no evidence that this is a Russian campaign and ample evidence that this is, that, that regardless of even what Russia's interest here is, the point is it comes from actual facts. In the case of the DNC in 2016, these were emails showing a clear bias against Bernie Sanders and uh, clear uh, dis disparities between what Hillary Clinton was saying publicly to Wall Street and what she was saying, uh, what, what Hillary Clinton was saying privately to Wall Street and what she was saying publicly during her campaign. And then in 2020, the same thing. You have, again, emails from Hunter Biden showing business dealings that are pretty ordinary in Washington, people peddling uh, their, uh, using their connections to, uh, to profit. But yet in both cases, both instances are decreed to be Russian disinformation. So they duly just get ignored by the entire media and large sectors of the U.S. public. They they tried the same thing in 2016. I don't know if you remember, but when WikiLeaks first started publishing these, these emails, there was an attempt by certain people on like MSNBC, like Malcolm Nance, the former intelligence official in quotes, that's what he claims to be. What he actually was is a lot sketchier than that lot lower level than he claims. But there were, you know, these kind of like whispers from the liberal sector of the media that perhaps these emails, their authenticity was unreliable. And members of the Clinton campaign started attaching themselves to that, suggesting that these emails are fake. Now, obviously, it was so obviously a lie because if you're in possession of emails, as obviously the Clinton campaign and the DNC by definition were since it was their emails, and somebody is publishing emails that purport to come from your account and they're fake, it's the easiest thing in the world to demonstrate that. You just call a reporter up to look in your inbox and show them that the email that you actually got is different than the one that's being published or that it's not there at all. And then you go to the people who purportedly sent it and you show them their email box, let it be examined, and the whole thing would get discredited. So they tried doing that whisper campaign, casting doubt about the authenticity of those materials and then, of course, they tried it again in 2020, telling people, oh, don't pay attention to those. Those are disinformation. They're not real. And ironically, it was the same thing that when I did the Brazil reporting, the uh, minister of justice for Jair Bolsonaro, who was the primary target of our reporting and expose about his corruption, Sergio Moro, and also the pro team of prosecutors he led, they resorted to that same tactic. They would always, in every answer they gave when asked about the content of the revelations, say, we don't know if these materials are real, which of course they did since it was their emails all along and they could have disproven it any time as well. It's a common tactic, but it's the job of journalists not to allow politicians to invoke that tactic in the case where it's misleading when the documents are real as they were in 2016, as they were in 2020, and yet they really did prepare. This is one of the things, Aaron, that I had not, I think, sufficiently understood is when I went back to kind of tell the story of what happened with the lie about the Hunter Biden email and in, in light of this new book and the evidence it, it compiled, I went back and kind of looked at the whole history of the year, the two years before. And what I found was 
all of these media outlets have spent two years rewriting their ethical rules and their evidentiary rules to prepare for the eventuality that there could be another leak of information that would be incriminating toward Joe Biden. And they created new rules to allow themselves not to publish it. You know, if it's a leak and maybe it comes from a foreign power and it's close to an election, like all these new rules that never existed in journalism before, like the rules of journalism were always very simple. When you have information in your hands, there's only two questions that matter. Is it authentic? And is it in the public interest for you to publish it, for the public to know? And if the answers to those two questions are yes, that's the end of the inquiry journalistically. And they invented this entire new framework to allow them to justify withholding material or not reporting on material, even if it was authentic and in the public interest, like the material that came from Hunter Biden's email about Joe Biden's business dealings in China and Ukraine. You know, you say that you thought the Russiagate scandal and then leading into Hunter Biden was the worst propaganda campaign. I think it was very similar to the kind of propaganda campaign that was engineered in 2002, 2003 that led to the invasion of Iraq. And I also think it's very similar to what was done almost throughout the entire Cold War when there were only a small handful of media outlets that could really reach the public in any meaningful way. The networks, NBC, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, Time Magazine. And the propaganda was incessant, was relentless in, in this, this, this union between the intelligence community and the media outlets. And I think that's the through line from the Cold War to Iraq to Russiagate to what happened in 2020 is the ideology of the media, the corporate media, obviously is that they're liberal, but what they really are more than anything else is tied at the hip to the intelligence community, which is why the only time we've seen them really go after a Democrat in six years was when Joe Biden withdrew from Afghanistan because that enraged the intelligence community who are their masters, really. And so I think that's the propaganda pipeline to which we're constantly subjected. I didn't say it was the worst. I said it was among the most successful because, look, to illustrate, you compare Russiagate, which is ongoing, to Iraq WMDs. Iraq WMDs had a shelf life. At a certain point, it expired, and they had to admit there was nothing there. Russiagate, no matter how many humiliations, debunked bombshells, it doesn't end. It just keeps on going. Like, just to illustrate, just you can take a million examples every single day. But today, there's this article in the Washington Post by Philip Bump. And uh, it's all about it's all about five it's all about his list of conspiracy theories that are still out there. A lot yeah. of them I think actually are are true. And of course, his definition of conspiracy theories doesn't include the one he helped push for four years, which is that Trump is a Russian asset. But but he writes this, for example, about the Hunter Biden story. He says social media companies concerned about having been vectors for Russian misinformation in 2016 limited the sharing of the New York Post story about. Hunter Biden's laptop. So just the fact that you can pronounce that, that these emails in 2016 and putting aside where they came from, I personally don't believe anymore that that I, I don't believe that Russia stole those emails. But even if they did, it, they weren't even misinformation. But he can still decree and pronounce that the emails released in 2016 were Russian misinformation and the media that reported on them were vectors for that. You know, it's it's that it's really a remarkable article that came out a day or two ago, because, as you say, it purports to debunk five ongoing conspiracy theories. And what amazed me is that on his list still is the Hunter Biden laptop, not the actual conspiracy theory, which was spread by his, his newspaper and all of their like minded uh, 
travelers in in corporate liberal media with the real lie, the real conspiracy theory was the one they spread, which is that the the Hunter laptop was the byproduct of Russian disinformation. The the what he's still classifying as a conspiracy theory is the revelations that come from the documents themselves. And he kind of goes out of his way to, he's forced to acknowledge this book, which he doesn't mention. He doesn't mention the reporter's name. He alludes to the fact that at least some of the emails have now been verified, but says, despite that authenticity, it doesn't take away from the fact that it's still a conspiracy theory, which makes no sense. The conspiracy theory was the one that he and his friends disseminated he did the same thing with FBI involvement in January 6th, which we now know at least to some extent is true because there's been reporting demonstrating that the FBI had its hooks in at least three of the key groups that the FBI itself claims are responsible for January 6th. The Proud Boys, Three Percenters, and Oath Keepers. And the New York Times just had an article today saying that, or last week, I mean, saying that they were talking to one of their own informants during the January 6th protest who was actually present at the Capitol. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, I, when I started writing about politics in 2005, the conservatives always claimed even back then that the media had a liberal bias. And I never really thought that was true. And I didn't, and I, looking back, I still don't think it was really true. The media hated Al Gore. They, they were obsessed with Bill Clinton sex scandals. They liked George Bush a lot better during the 2000 election and often said that. That was the famous, who would you rather have a beer with, George Bush or Al Gore? They obviously played a key role in helping Bush and Cheney in the Iraq war, selling it also in um, generally defending the war on terror. So I don't think it was true back then that the liberal, the media was liberal. You could even make the cases a lot of people did that they were kind of biased toward Republicans after 9-11. But now with after Trump, I think the entire corporate media completely and fundamentally and irrevocably transformed. They really do see themselves now as being on the front lines of this ideological and partisan battle and relinquished every last journalistic ethical constraint on what they do in the name of winning this war. And Russiagate became and still is their primary cudgel. And I do take your point that you know, at least I remember there were some neocons even in 2005, 2006, claiming Saddam moved his weapons of mass destruction to Syria. Or they were still hidden underground. But by James and large, Clapper, you're right. James Clapper said that, famously said that. Yeah, exactly. So by and large, though, people recognized a few years after at least that that was a fraud. And certainly now there's a very widespread recognition. It's hard to find anybody who would claim it was true. But you're right with Russiagate because it's kind of a negative that can't be proven, right? You can't prove the negative that it didn't happen. They're always going to cling to these morsels that they were fed to insist that it did. Can I just say, J James Clapper is an amazing figure, just given how many times he's been publicly caught to be lying through his teeth. So uh, in the lead up to the Iraq war, he claims that there's he was the head of some naval intelligence unit, and he claims that there's rock solid intelligence that Saddam is moving his WMDs into Syria. Then he gets caught lying to Congress about spying on Americans, as the leaks you reported showed. Uh, then you know he pushes he after he retires as head of the um, uh, Office of National Intelligence, he becomes a hardcore Russia gator on CNN. You know, constantly pushing the conspiracy theories, declaring there's evidence of collusion. Then during the Hunter 
Biden laptop thing. He comes out again and says that is all the classic uh, earmarks of of Soviet tradecraft of Russian disinformation. It's like no amount of humiliating failures for him uh, can do anything. It's just people, and people still put people like him on TV as if they're serious people. I'm just marveling. They don't, they don't just put them on TV. He's hired. He works for CNN. He he's paid by CNN to help its viewers understand the news. That's his job. I think that it is inherently improper to take people who have spent their entire lives in the intelligence community and install them into newsrooms because the division between journalism on the one hand and the security state on the other should be sacrosanct. And when you start infiltrating newsrooms out in the open, not clandestinely as they always used to do, but out in the open, automatically that is a corruption of journalism. But when you do it to the extent that they've done it, where, you know, you, I mean, every segment or show on MSNBC and CNN virtually involves former agents of the FBI or operatives from the CIA or the NSA or the Justice Department or the Pentagon. I mean, it's like, you know, working in Langley, working in the green rooms of, of those networks. But even then, if you were to say, well, look, we, we, we look on, we look for, um, on purpose for the most honest and reliable ones because we think they bring in some kind of unique perspective that helps our audience understand the world, I would still find that to be dangerous and, and unconvincing, but at least that would be a cogent reason why it could be done. In this case, as you say, there's few people in the world who have a history of clearer and more harmful lying over the course of decades than James Clapper, and he works for the network that prides itself on combating disinformation when so much of what they say comes from the epicenter of disinformation and to the point where they even pay and hire and contract the people in those agencies who oversee the disinformation. So on this front, let me uh, ask you about the recent developments in Russiagate, a similar theme where you have an indictment now coming out showing uh, that a Clinton campaign lawyer, Michael Sussman, was involved in concocting this fake narrative, trying to tie the Trump organization to a Russian bank and trying to seed that into the media and to the FBI. And, the F and John Durham, the special counsel, accuses Sussman of concealing the fact that he was billing the Clinton campaign for his time and actually working with the, with the Clinton campaign to push this lie. It's interesting contrast to all the indictments we got during the Mueller era where everything was taken as like confirmation for the underlying Trump-Russia conspiracy when if you read the actual indictment, uh, which few people did, every time it would show that the, the Mueller team had nothing. They had innuendo, but in terms of actual evidence for a Trump-Russia conspiracy, they had nothing. And that's why, presumably, there were zero charges relating to a Trump-Russia conspiracy by the end of the Mueller investigation. But the media treated the Mueller indictments and every Mueller indictment and, uh, and every Mueller development far differently than they're treating this John Durham indictment. I'm wondering your comments on that. Yeah, you know, it is interesting. I mean, obviously, the Mueller investigation did result in indictments and convictions, none of which alleged a criminal conspiracy between Americans on the one hand and Russians on the other to interfere in the 2016 election, which was the crux of the entire scandal to begin with. That's what Mueller was appointed to investigate, was whether there was criminality between Americans in general or Trump campaign operatives in particular 
and the Russians to criminally manipulate the election, and he found none. He said he found none. There was no evidence to establish that criminal conspiracy, and he charged, let alone convicted, no Americans of that core crime that launched the entire investigation in the first place. By contrast, the John Durham investigation was initiated to determine whether there was criminality not in the Trump-Russia conspiracy, but in the creation of that conspiracy theory that turned out to be false, whether the members of the security state and related entities committed crimes by disseminating Russiagate and investigating it and in the origins of it. And the indictment you just referenced was not the first instance of criminality that has been unearthed by John Durham, not on some ancillary matter or some process crime, but at the heart of what he was asked to investigate back in January, they obtained a guilty plea from a lawyer with the FBI who acknowledged deceiving the FISA court, submitting to the FISA court altered emails in order to trick the FISA court into issuing a warrant to spy on Carter Page, the former operative with the Trump campaign. A really serious crime to lie to the FISA court, which only has one side present, to trick them into allowing you to spy on an American citizen in the middle of a presidential campaign. That too got ignored. And now we have the second indictment, which I find so consequential because of the story it tells, right? So the lie itself, the alleged lie that David Sussman is accused of having told is not in and of itself a major crime. He went to the FBI with this fraudulent storyline about Trump having a secret server that allowed him to communicate with the Russian-based Alpha Bank. And when asked by the FBI, on whose behalf are you here? He said, nobody, I'm here just as a concerned citizen. When in fact, he was working directly for the Clinton campaign and even billed them for that meeting and the other work around his attempt to disseminate the story, which is a material lie. The FBI went on a, on a wild goose chase investigating the story and found it was baseless. And according to the FBI, at least, had he told them, I'm here on behalf of the Clinton campaign, they would have realized it had a political motive. The much more interesting part to me is what it shows about this collaboration between friendly, Clinton-friendly parts of the media and the Clinton campaign and parts of the security state. The person who first broke this fake story was Frank Foer at Slate. And as I think you were the one who pointed out first, at least that I saw, it was really Franklin Fuller who was the first journalist to, in a meaningful and sustained way, draw some connection between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin by a story he published in Slate a couple months earlier, essentially saying that Donald Trump is the greatest operat operation that Vladimir Putin could possibly impose to harm America. So he wasn't necessarily alleging an actual connection between the two. Really, the first ones who did that were David Cornyn and, and Mike Isikoff. But he was the first one to insinuate that there was something between Trump and Russia. And so the fact that, or, or Trump and Putin. So the fact that he then ended up being the first person to break the story and the indictment demonstrates how that happened, that he was fed that by Fusion GPS, that was the, the, the firm that hired Christopher Steele and that produced the fraudulent Steele dossier while working for the Clintons, while working for the Clinton campaign. And that it was Fusion GPS and David Sussman pushing Frank Forrest saying, you need to get this story out, you know, quickly. And then when he published it, Hillary Clinton went to Twitter 
as did her entire top level of her campaign led by Jake Sullivan, who's now Biden's national security advisor, to promote it, to say, oh, wow, as though like they were pretending that they had just learned about it in Slate, as, as opposed to the truth, which is that their campaign was the ones who cooked it up and concocted this fake story, this fake server connection by saying, you know, we demand to know why is Donald Trump secretly communicating with the Russian-based bank? And the media, you know, the other thing that I found so interesting with the indictment is the, the indictment says that by February of 2017, so really just like in three months, the FBI concluded there was no basis to this claim that the Trump organization weren't wasn't even in control of these servers, that it was probably a marketing firm, that there was nothing unusual about the internet traffic. And yet in March of 2017, Natasha Bertrand, who this was before she was promoted to The Atlantic, then Politico, and then CNN when she was a business insider, wrote a story claiming that the FBI was investigating actively this connection, which was a lie. They had already concluded that it was baseless. And then in 2018, Aaron, Chris Hayes put on Frank Four and Natasha Bertrand, both of them were at the Atlantic of the time. And essentially, they all agreed that the evidence was overwhelming clear that there was, in fact, some clandestine communication between Trump and Alpha Bank. I mean, what more <laughs> evidence do you need? It's very, very obvious. And it's really Occam's razor here. The fact that we still have not been able to rule out the idea that this was a covert communication channel two years after the fact, the fact that no one has come forth with a plausible explanation for why this was happening, for why Alpha Bank was one of three organizations communicating with the Trump server in those months leading up to the election is just completely remarkable. And I think the fact that Frank's uh, story got overlooked or criticized as much as it did. And the fact that now it's being revisited and you have the editor of the New York Times saying that there you know, was a story there just shows the lack of imagination. So when the indictment comes out and the crux of it is the story was fake, of course, it's an indictment of Hillary's lawyer, technically. But for me, the much more important indictment is the one of that entire Russiagate sector of the media. That story you reference uh, by Franklin Foyer, July 4th, 2016, it's called Putin's Puppet. If the Russian president could design a candidate to undermine American interests and advance his own, he'd look a lot like Donald Trump. That's July 4th, 2016, very early on. That's only a few weeks after another Clinton campaign contractor, CrowdStrike, came out with this, this allegation that Russia had hacked the DNC. And that was shortly after... Uh, Michael Sussman's firm, Perkins Coy, had hired both CrowdStrike and had hired Fusion GPS. And now we learn that from Durham's indictment that Fusion GPS was directly communicating with Franklin Foyer of Slate and telling him to hurry to publish up his Alpha Bank story. So it just, you know, all this raises just more questions about um, just how far does this fraud go? Uh, and but certainly what's what's undeniable is that the fraud involves willing media dupes like Franklin Foyer and people at MSNBC, and it's their silence uh, on this on these on this indictment so far speaks volumes. And it's interesting to look at the New York Times as well. I'm not sure if you've followed their reporting, but the New York Times, led by Charlie Savage, who most recently was was used to push the Russian bounty scam. We all remember that dominated the news for the summer of 2020. This allegation that Vladimir Putin was paying bounties to uh, people in Afghanistan to kill U.S. soldiers. That obviously fell apart when the Biden administration admitted that there was nothing to it. But and, and, and just to quickly interject there, that came out right as Trump was unveiling his plan to withdraw from Afghanistan. 
And I remember I covered the hearing at the House Armed Services Committee when Liz Cheney allied with the pro-war Democrats on that committee over and over when they advocated defunding Trump's withdrawal plan from Afghanistan, they cited that story. That was the purpose of that story was to say, we can't leave Afghanistan and hand the Russians this victory when we just learned that they were putting bounties on the heads of American soldiers. We can't reward them by leaving. That was the purpose of that CIA lie that they fed to Charlie Savage, who dutifully published it and then let Dick Cheney, uh, Liz Cheney and the pro-war Democrats exploit it to prevent an earlier withdrawal of Afghanistan than we got. Let me go on to another issue, uh, which um, speaks to everything we've been talking about, which is Julian Assange. So you have a new story in Yahoo News confirming what you know my colleague Max Blumenthal had reported before, that there was a CIA operation to spy on, uh, possibly kidnap and poison Julian Assange. Yahoo News, uh, which includes uh, Michael Isakoff, got a, a, many former officials to confirm that this plot was conceived at the highest level. Mike Pompeo was overseeing it. Mike Pompeo basically has confirmed the story. He acknowledged to Megyn Kelly that parts of it were true. Makes for pretty good fiction, Megan. They should write. They should write such a novel. This is classic Isakoff. Uh, like I, I can't say much about this other than uh, whoever those thirty people who allegedly spoke with one of these reporters, uh, they should all be prosecuted for speaking about classified activity inside the Central Intelligence Agency. Maybe they didn't. Maybe Isakoff just made it up. But you should know I take seriously my responsibilities to protect that information. Mm -hmm. Hey, there's pieces of it that are true. Were we trying to protect American information from Julian Assange and WikiLeaks? Absolutely, yes. Did our Justice Department believe they had a valid claim, which would have resulted in the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States to stand trial here? Yes, I supported that effort for sure. Did we ever engage in activity that was inconsistent with U.S. law? You know, you know the rules here, Megan. You know precisely how the CIA operates the, in the sense of we're not permitted by U.S. law to conduct assassinations. We, we never acted in a way that was inconsistent with that, nor did we ever circumvent. There's some suggestion in this article that we circumvented the lawyers to uh, mm -hmm. to conduct these kinds of Well, we know we never campaigns. acted in it because Julian Assange well, is still I mean, but, but alive. Was, but, the the, the reporting this... is that there was a plot that, you know, plans yeah. and sketches and pretty yeah. detailed discussions. Yeah, I can say we never we never conducted planning to violate U.S. law, not once in my time. And again, this is an explosive revelation. I mean, the, the details in this story, you know, are out of a, are out of a, a thriller. And it's the U.S. government at the highest level is talking about killing and kidnapping this world famous publisher. And yet again, just as with the other issues we've been talking about, so far as I can see, so far it's been again prevailing media silence. You know, this is so interesting because if you say publicly that the CIA is this malevolent force in the world, no one will really disagree with you. What they try instead to do is to suggest or depict this alternative reality that the CIA used to be malevolent. So they'll say, yeah, it was really bad that we overthrew the Iranian government in 1954. And I'm kind of against what we did in Chile in the early seventies with Pinochet and they imply that the CIA's bad deeds are a thing of the past. You know, when the same thing used to happen when people would ask me about Russian interference in the 2016 election. And I would say even if Russia did all the things that's accused of doing, 
compared to what the United States and the CIA do to pretty much everyone around the world, including Russia, it's insignificant. It's completely trivial. And they would say, yeah, it was wrong that we did those things 40 years ago. And that's whatever, that's what always happens to CIA because they operate in the dark in total secrecy. They're able to pretend that all their bad things are always 10 or 20 or 30 years ago when we learn about them 20 or 30 years later, and now they're reformed. And what this article proves, I mean, I personally didn't find it the slightest bit surprising. After all, Mike Pompeo gave the speech of 2017 and to the CIA. That was one of the most deranged speeches I've ever heard a high-level U.S. official give in public. I wrote about it at the time because it was so disturbing it's time to call out WikiLeaks for what it really is, a non-state hostile intelligence service often abetted by state actors like Russia. We have to recognize that we can no longer allow Assange and his colleagues the latitude to use free speech values against us. To give them the space to crush us with misappropriated secrets is a perversion of what our great constitution stands for. It ends now. He was vowing to destroy WikiLeaks, essentially saying we will go to every length possible to put an end to their claim that they have an entitlement under the First Amendment or anything else to, 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 to report on what our government is doing. He really, I guess, you know, to the extent he deserves any credit, it's the fact that he really didn't try and hide what it was that he was saying and doing. He called them a hostile uh, intelligence service, a non-state intelligence service. And obviously the way you treat a hostile non-intelligence, uh, non-state intelligence service is by taking serious lanes clandestinely to undermine them. And then they unveiled this indictment that became possible only because Rick Grinnell was dispatched to Ecuador to bully or bribe or coerce or some combination of those, the Ecuadorian government to withdraw its eight years of asylum that it had given Assange that allowed him to remain in the embassy. And once they withdrew it, because the U.S. government under Trump bullied them into doing it, they were able to go in and drag him out of the embassy and put him in a U.K. prison where he remains to today. So to hear that Mike Pompeo and senior intelligence officials were talking about the craziest stuff, killing Assange, kidnapping him, breaking into the homes of other WikiLeaks associates, stealing their electronic goods, obviously spying on them, I guess on the one hand, you can say it's surprising just when you get confirmation that so recently an agency of the U.S. government is plotting to do things that evil to murder a journalist, the thing that we're supposed to hate Saudi Arabia for doing. The only thing we're supposed to hate Saudi Arabia for doing what they did to Jamal Khashoggi was what Mike Pompeo was planning to do to Julian Assange, maybe not quite as savagely or maybe as savagely, who knows, but the idea was Julian Assange would end up dead or certainly kidnapped. On the one hand, it's surprising just because it it's shocking. But on the other hand, it's what the CIA does. It's who they are. This is who these people are. They're ghouls and barbarians and savages. And that is why, Aaron, you know, my posture in the Trump years always was to say, hate Donald Trump all you want, but understand that this coalition of forces that have united in opposition to him are at least just as bad and way more dangerous. You also factor into this Assange story, and I'm wondering if if this was news to you uh, or just confirm what you already knew. So uh, Yahoo News reports that under the Obama administration, there was an effort at the highest level. Top intelligence officials argued to have you and Laura Poitras 
uh, both of you reported extensively on the Snowden leaks, obviously, uh, to have you reclassified from journalists to information brokers, which would then, I, I guess, open up more capacity inside the CIA for them to target you. Was that news to you? Did you suspect that this had happened before? Uh, what's your reaction to this? And again, what's your reaction to the prevailing media silence on this pretty explosive revelation? Yeah, I mean, yeah, so the reporting in Yahoo, that Yahoo story was that they the reason they wanted to do that was to enable them to spy on us, but also potentially to prosecute us, to arrest us. And at the time, what happened was Laura and I were the only two journalists who actually met with Snowden in Hong Kong. You and McCaskill of The Guardian joined us uh, the day later. But other reporters like Bart Gelman never went to Hong Kong, never met with Snowden, just you know, kind of remotely got the archive and, and reported it. And I remember really well that I was in Hong Kong for about two weeks, was snowed in with Laura. She was filming the whole time, which became the basis for the Oscar-winning film Citizen Four about our work together in Hong Kong. And at the end of that two weeks, when the story by then had already broken, I had published, I don't know, five or six stories. We had unveiled Snowden as the source with the video interview that I conducted and Laura filmed. It was obviously the biggest story in the world. It was a huge, huge scandal. And my intention was to travel back to the US from Hong Kong before I went back to Brazil to do a bunch of media, to meet with the Guardian editors, to essentially explain to the public what we had done and what we intended to continue to do and why and what its significance was. And the lawyers that I had gotten from the Guardian were these people who were very well connected to the Holder Justice Department, former partners of, Ed, of, of, of Eric Holder and of other senior Justice Department officials who could pick up the phone and get them on the phone. So they really understood what was happening inside the Obama Justice Department. And when they heard my plan to travel back to the U.S., they strenuously warned me not to do that, saying that that was very dangerous, that for sure I would get a subpoena compelling me to testify against my own source, but there's a good chance I would also be arrested. And so instead of traveling back to the US, I went through Dubai back to Brazil and I stayed in Brazil for the next 11 months because when James Clapper, our old friend that we just talked about, whenever he would speak publicly about this, the Snowden reporting, obviously he was asked about it a lot because it was his lie that sparked it. He would always be very careful to refer to me and Laura as allies of the fugitive or eaters and a better of the leakers, never ever referring to us as a journalist. There were people like Peter King and others, the member, the Republican member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, calling for my arrest. When I went to meet the press, David Gregory asked me whether I should be in prison or not. Obviously, it was in the air in Washington. So I had also gotten confirmation. There were a couple of New York Times senior national security journalists and a couple of others who called me during this and said, we have confirmation that you're being spied on. We know that there's talk about whether you should be arrested if you go back to the U.S. Remember that when my husband, David Miranda, flew to Berlin to meet with Laura to pick up a part of the archive that had been corrupted that she had fixed and flew back to Brazil through Heathrow, he was detained under a terrorism law for 11 hours by the British government. And when David sued the British government, saying that it was targeting journalists, they responded by saying they knew that he was going there to get that archive and would be carrying back that part of the archive, which is why they stopped him. And they could have only known that had they been spying on her, an allied intelligence agency been spying on myself, Laura, 
the guardian and or David, because we were the only ones who knew that David had intended to do that. So I always knew that there was discussions at the highest level of the government about the possibility of arresting me and Laura, if we went back to the United States, that's why I didn't go back for 11 months until we won the Polk and the Pulitzers were being announced. And we thought the price that they would have to pay would be too high, but we weren't sure when we landed in New York together, Laura and I, what was going to happen when we tried to re-enter the, the United States. And this is now confirmation that this CIA tried early on to push this theory, the highest levels of the intelligence community that ultimately became the theory that the Trump and now the Biden administration used to prosecute Julian, but also is the same theory that the Bolsonaro government used to try and prosecute me, to indict me and try and prosecute me, which was that the way we worked with our sources meant that we weren't journalists, but something else. And this is why, Aaron, the prosecution of Julian Assange now being spearheaded by the Biden Justice Department is by far the most dangerous threat to press freedom, because if this precedent is permitted to take hold, that you can just reclassify somebody from a journalist into something else and punish them by virtue of the reporting that they've done, that will end up endangering every single person who actually does journalism in the Western world. And when Trump brought this case, I mean, our media colleagues, many of them didn't really seem to care. And now certainly the Biden is doing it. I think the interest in, the interest in Assange persecution is even less, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, I've kept you away over time, but I want to ask you about one more thing. Let's end on a on a point of levity. I haven't even known what to do with the story because I just find it so crazy and absurd. But uh, it's this, this talk of Havana syndrome. For a few years now, we've been hearing about sonic weapons injuring U.S. diplomats in Cuba and other places around the world. And, you know, Cuba and Russia have been the main culprits in the eyes of CIA officials. Now we get this report in BuzzFeed News. I'll just read you the first sentence and ask you to react. Noises linked to mysterious injuries among U.S. diplomats in Cuba were most likely caused by crickets, not microwave weapons, according to a declassified scientific review commissioned by the U.S. State Department. Glenn, as we wrap your thoughts on this uh, story of the Havana syndrome. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it, it is laughable in one sense, but this is not something that's new. I remember I wrote about that for The Intercept in 2018, maybe 2019. They did a an analysis of the sounds that were emanating from these places near Havana that were identified as these strange noises that might be a new sonic weapon causing these injuries. And they discovered that it was indistinguishable, completely indistinguishable, using their very delicate sonic instruments from the noises that emit from these very particular crickets that exist in Cuba. So there was already evidence that this was psychosomatic, that this was something that the CIA had wildly exaggerated. I remember a segment on MSNBC where they had on Ken Delanian, who genuinely is probably other than David Ignatius, the most devoted loyal to the intelligence community in the entire American media. And they did a segment and the beginning of the segment was breaking news. The CIA has now concluded that Russia is to blame for these injuries that U.S. diplomats and others are experiencing in Havana. Exclusive new reporting this morning from NBC News. Intelligence agencies investigating attacks on U.S. diplomats in Cuba and China now strongly suspect 
that Russia is to blame. 26 government workers in Havana had mysterious brain injuries starting in late 2016. And then this year, one U.S. worker in China was diagnosed with similar symptoms. Joining me now with more on this is NBC News Intelligence and National Security Reporter Ken Delaney. And so this has been a mystery. The CIA, the FBI, other intelligence agencies have all been working to try to figure out what exactly happened here. Why do they suspect Russia now? And what's the evidence that they have? Well, it's still partially a mystery, Chris, but they have more and more evidence, they say. Three U.S. officials tell us pointing to Russia, including communications intercepts that suggest that the Russian intelligence agency was involved. Now, really, there was only three suspects from the beginning here, Russia, China, and the Cubans. The Russian and the Chinese intelligence services operate in force in Cuba. And it's still believed that it's possible that some element of the Cuban intelligence services cooperated with this. The other interesting thing we're reporting here is that one of the technologies used to injure these American spies and diplomats was some kind of microwave weapon that is so sophisticated the Americans don't even fully understand it and they've been testing some kinds of aspects of this technology. Uh, so kind of reverse engineering? Is that what they're trying to do? Absolutely. And this has been going on now for years. They, they started speculating that maybe China was behind it. They claim that there were incidents of it in Austria and other parts of Eastern Europe. It's been this bizarre kind of conspiracy theory bubbling up for for a few years now in the intelligence community. And this BuzzFeed report is just the latest to demonstrate that it's some naturally occurring event in nature, probably from, as you said, a cricket, that once you start, you know, it's some combina combination of some kind of contagion, like social contagion on the part of diplomats working overseas who might get a little bit of a headache or feel weird in a way and then convince themselves they have the Havana syndrome and then Google it and read up about it and then create the symptoms like has happened to all of us in the internet age, combined with a deliberate attempt by the CIA to exploit this to gin up anger and hatred and the need for greater budgetary authority against the typical list of US enemies. And as usual, the media has just gone on along for the ride. And Congress too, which just passed a bill just a, a few days before this revelation from BuzzFeed, Congress passed a bill to give health care to all those afflicted with Havana syndrome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, Glenn Greenwald, I've kept you way, kept you way over time, so I really appreciate you joining me. Uh, Glenn writes at greenwald.substack.com. Glenn, thanks so much. Always great to talk to you, Aaron. Thanks.